Y'all, bow with me. Father Yahweh, we thank you so much for this day that you have given us. We thank you for your Sabbath. We thank you for this place to come and gather and worship. Father, we just pray that you would be with me today as I speak. Let my words be truth. Father, uh, may you stir within us a desire to just seek you and follow you, declare your word, and seek your face. Father, we ask this prayer in Yeshua's name. Hallelujah. So I hope everybody's enjoying the heat. I hope everybody's garden's doing well. Um, although today my message isn't going to be, as you can tell, it's not about uh, agriculture or the- agricultural themes, so I'm going to steer off of that for today and kind of follow um, one of my other passions, and that's history in general, but early American history. So today we're going to look at the history of Sabbath keeping in America. Uh, where did this return to the Sabbath come from within corrupt Christianity? How and when did it make its way to America? How did it spread and leave an impact within the different Christian denominations? Now, I'm going to preface this. This is in, will in no way will be an exhaustive study on all American Sabbath keepers. Um, it's actually primarily just focused on Sabbath keeping within the German Anabaptist background. Uh, this is what I'm most familiar with because this is the background. And it has, uh, it has its roots within my ancestral land in Europe and and it developed and then spread into the region of my birth in Pennsylvania. And this, um, from what I see, at least maybe it's just a biased opinion, but it appears to be one of the most prominent Sabbath-keeping groups outside of Judaism. Um, as we investigate the early Sabbath-keepers, we will also find more beliefs, teachings, and doctrines that we hold in common with these early pioneers. So let's uh, take a look at where this idea uh, that Christians should be keeping the Sabbath got its rebirth at in Europe uh, before it came to the Americas. We know that it was the Roman church that changed the Sabbath to Sunday, so it would be logical that the origins of this awakening would start there. Revelation 18.4 states, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins, lest you take part in her plagues. So before we go further... I want to uh, define two terms that we will be seeing. So the first term is uh, pietist or pietism. It's uh, the German pietismus. So it was the influential religious reform movement that began among German Lutherans in the 17th century. It emphasized personal faith against the main Lutheran church's perceived stress on doctrine and theology over Christian living. Pietism quickly spread and later became concerned with social and educational matters. As a phenomenon of personal religious renewal, its indirect influence has persisted in Germany and other parts of Europe into the 21st century. Uh, This was quoted from uh, Britannica.com. So just to define this word pious, it's an adjective, and uh, it's marked by by or showing reverence for deity and devotion to divine worship. It's marked by conspicuous religiosity, and it's uh, something sacred or devotional as distinct from things that are profane or secular, religious. As we can see from from the definition, piety is a marked difference from the world around us. 
you know, this would include to us things like Sabbath keeping, the feasts, the name, also differences in dress. You know, many of us wear zitzits, things like modest clothing. You know, it's also marked by things like actions in your day-to-day life, the way we walk, the way we talk, not cursing or swearing, not tearing other people down. We are to act like children of Yahweh, not of children of Hasatan. It's my opinion that piety is lacking in America. I mean, for sure in America, but especially within all the religious institutions and even within the sacred name movement as well. We could all do a better job of living more pious lives. The next term that we're going to take a look at is Anabaptist. So it's from the Greek Anna, which means again, and it's a member of a fringe or radical movement of the Protestant Reformation and spiritual ancestor of modern Baptists, Mennonites, and Quakers. The movement's most distinctive tenet was adult baptism. Its first generation, in, in its first generation, converts submitted to a second baptism, which was a crime punishable by death under the legal codes of the time. Members rejected the label Anabaptist, or rebaptizer, for they repudiated their own baptisms as infants as a blasphemous formality. They considered the public confession of sin and faith sealed by adult baptism to be the only proper baptism. Following the Swiss reformer Huldrych Zwingli, they held that infants are not punishable for sin until they become aware of good and evil and can exercise their own free will, repent, and accept baptism. Again, a definition from Britannica.com. So here we see that a, a great deal of modern denominations stem from this movement. This would include Mennonites, Amish, Baptists, Quakers, Shakers, and the like. The original sect of Anabaptists emerged between 1520 and 1530. We are descendants of this, uh, uh, you know, and are considered Anabaptists because we're baptizing as adults, not like the Lutherans and Catholics as infants who you know, the infants, what are they, you know, they don't know. What are they repenting from? We know that there is no biblical ground for infant baptism. John the baptizer and Yahshua and the, the apostles, they were all baptizing adults. So it's from this Anabaptist movement that we meet our first two brave saints that were trying to re- restore the faith. So they were... The two guys that we're going to take a look at here in in Germany yet before they left and came, or before Sabbath-keeping left Europe and came to America, were Oswald Glate and Andreas Fischer, both of whom were originally Catholic priests, and they dissented during the Reformation initiated by Luther, both of whom were eventually put to death for their beliefs and teachings. Now, I was not able to find a ton of info on on these gentlemen, so the primary source I had to use was Wikipedia, which I'm not the biggest fan of because it's such an open source. But the one thing, and we'll look at the references, is that both of them reference books by Daniel Lecty um, that I would have liked to get my hands on, but I, I wasn't able to um, before and while putting this together. But let's take a quick look at these two guys. So Oswald Glate was born in 1490, and he died in Vienna in 1546. He was a German Anabaptist and a Sabbatarian. Originally a follow, follower, and a lot of these, some of these different names, who they were followers of, aren't too important to what we're looking at now. But uh, Balthazar Hubmeyer in uh, 1527, 
In the Nicholasburg dispute, he, decided, he sided with the pacifist position of Hans Hunt. He then appeared in Silesia, along with Andreas Fischer, as a leader of an Anabaptist group there. He penned a booklet, Vom Shabbat, advocating for the reinstitution of the Saturday Sabbath keeping as a Christian practice, thus restoring what Glate argued uh, had been the original practice of the Apostolic Church of the New Testament. There is also good evidence in, the, in this writing, which was lost but carefully reconstructed by Daniel Lecty, um, based on a refutation of it, that Glate strongly believed that Messiah's second coming was to occur in the very near future. This shows the extent of Hans Hunt's influence on Glate at this time. Glate appears later in the sources attached to the nascent Hutterite group in Moravia. He was arrested and imprisoned in Vienna in 1545, then taken out at night and drowned in the autumn of 1546. So since I did quote Wikipedia, I did want to list their references. And it came from um, Andreas Fischer and the Sabbatarian... Oops, sorry. Skip my notes too quick. It came from the Encyclopedia of, of um, Protestantism on page 477. Oswald Glate and Andreas Fischer, both former Catholic priests, began to propagate Sabbatarianism, the belief that Saturday is still the Sabbath, around 1528 among Anabaptists in Moravia, Silesia, and Bohemia. And uh, the other sort that the source that they cite is Oswald Glate by Daniel Lecti. So the next gentleman that we're going to look at, which was already mentioned, is Andreas Fischer, who was born in 1480 and died in 1540. He was an Austrian Moravian Anabaptist, an associate of Oswald Glate. He first appeared as an Anabaptist leader in the public records of 1528 in Silesia, as a literary opponent of Caspar Schwollenflitz's associate uh, Van, or Valentine Crotwald. His main written work is, I'm not even going to try to quote it, but in which he defended not only adult baptism, but also, following Glate, the reinstitution of the Saturday Sabbath keeping as a Christian practice. The work is lost, but its main arguments are carefully reconstructed by Daniel Lecti, based on Crotwalt's tract against it. Again, I'm not going to try to um, cite the tract, but it's obviously against this von Shabbat. So Fisher spent the 1530s moving back and forth uh, between Silesia, Moravia, and Slovakia, where he found fertile ground for his ideas, especially among the population of miners, who were staging a series of strikes and revolts throughout, the de- throughout that decade. Fisher was arrested and put to death in 1540. Again, I just wanted to take a quick, I wanted to um, note the Wikipedia references. And um, so Andreas Fisher and the Sabbath, Sabbatarian Anabaptist by Daniel Lecti in 1988. Daniel Lecti places Sabbatarianism within the perspective of the reinstitution theme of the Radical Reformation in the study of Andreas Fischer, the main leader in a small Sabbatarian faction among the 16th century Anabaptists. So has anybody here actually heard of Daniel Lecti? Okay, me neither, not before this. I want to find some of these works. But uh, the second one is Sabbatarianism in the 16th century. I'm sure somebody's Googling him right now, though, right? But 
So Daniel Lechte, uh, from his 1990 book, um, which examined the Sabbatarian phenomenon in East Central Europe, both among Anabaptists of Silesia, Moravia, and Slovakia, among Unitarians in Carpathia, Transylvania. So <clears throat> I'm sure that these gentlemen had, uh, had some ties and had visited um, the Waldensians that Elder Allen spoke about a few weeks ago. Um, I'm sure there, there was probably a tie, because you know, they're in the same area. But um, I kind of concentrated on these two guys, really, because where they came from. So I'm going to talk about these guys a little bit more, because I did find some additional information outside of um, Wikipedia on them. And it's from an article um, that I found on the Internet at a, a website called A4T-A-4T.org. And um, the article... It's a short article, so I'm just going to read it. It says that two Anabaptists were led by Bible study to a particularly perilous conclusion. Both were former priests who had sacrificed the priesthood to become first Lutherans and then Anabaptists. One of these was Oswald Glate, the other Andreas Fisher. Around 1527, Glate and Fisher were astonished to read in the Bible that the weekly day Elohim wanted men to keep holy was not Sunday, the first day of the week, but Saturday, the seventh. When they began to teach this, theologians were sent to persuade them to abandon what they called the Jewish Sabbath. Glate and Fisher replied that the Bible calls the seventh day the Sabbath of Yahweh thy Elohim, quoted from Exodus 28, 20, verse 8 through 11, not the Jewish Sabbath. They showed from the Bible that the Sabbath was given at creation to our first parents, as a blessing for the entire human race. Genesis 2, 1 through 3. They quoted Messiah. The Sabbath was made for man. Mark 2, 27. Not merely for Jews. The theologians contended that Yahshua brought the Sabbath to an end. In return, Glayton Fisher quoted Messiah again. Think not that I have come to abolish the law. Till heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Matthew 5, 17 and 18, one of our favorite you know, things to quote. That's, that's actually the easiest one. Just quote that one, and it usually leaves people speechless. When the theologians suggest that the apostles abolished the Sabbath after Messiah's death, Glayton Fisher quoted the apostle James. Whoever shall keep the whole, the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all, James 2.10. They quoted the Apostle Paul, by faith we establish, not destroy the law, Romans 3.31. And the Apostle John, those who have the faith of Yahshua keep, not break the commandments of Elohim, Revelation 14.12. So they're using, they, back then in the 1500s, they were using the same scriptures to defend the faith as we do today. So, I mean, that puts us on a pretty solid rock. When the, the theologians asked Glayton Fisher to submit to the church's judgment, they replied that their consciousness was captive to the word of Yah. Again, this is from uh, A4T.org under the article, The Man Who Was Executed Twice. And, and the reason it was, I didn't quote the whole thing here, but basically um, it was Glate. I think they tried to kill him the first time. And something happened when he was supposed to be hung, and he ended up living for a few more years. He kind of slipped away, and then they caught him again and put him to death. But both of these brave men stood up against the unholy Roman church, and they ended up paying for it in the end with their lives. However, I believe that they will be counted among the saints in the end. And we have them to thank 
for their work in restoration of all things. These men planted a seed that lived on in the Palatinate region of modern-day Germany that lasted long enough to influence the next pioneer of the faith that we will meet in a few minutes. But first, what I want to do is um, talk about a couple things. The first is, does anybody know what was actually happening at this time that helped fuel this quest for truth? Bibles were being printed, and they were being translated first into German, such as the German Lutheran Bible in 1522, which led to other translations, and then eventually the Geneva Bible in English in 1599. So it was in this time that people could actually read the scriptures for themselves in their own tongues. So when, you know, when man actually has the opportunity to search the scriptures for himself, if he's truly wanting to please Yahweh, he's going to come to the truth of the scriptures that are obvious, as, as many of us have. You know, we all came from different backgrounds, but when we actually read the words and not can just look at the doctrines that are put forth by whatever church you were in, you know, the, the truth is compelling. Now, before we move on, I actually want to take a look at a few um, maps in the region of Germany that we're talking about. Um, and as far as I can tell, this is this right where I'm so interested in it is this is where um, my, uh, my family came from originally. So the Palatinate, which is... Sounds a lot like Palestine, but I'm not going there trying to make any connections or anything like that, but it, it, it's a coincidence, if nothing else. But the, the Palatinate is in um, the southwestern Germany, what's modern-day Germany. Um, at this time, you know, there's all these different kingdoms, which you can kind of see laid out here on this map. And the Palatinate is what's circled there in red. It's closer, you know, down towards France and Switzerland. You know, by coincidence, not... Because of this, but uh, in 2013, Jenny and I actually took a trip to this region. We went to Germany and kind of went to France and Switzerland, and we drove right through it. And I'm telling you, it's a beautiful region. It's absolutely beautiful. It's a mix of agricultural fields and forests. It has gorgeous hills and mountains, quaint little villages that are surrounded by, by um, orchards and vineyards. It's just a, a very peaceful, tranquil area. And... Um, even today, it's actually pretty sparsely populated, really low population. You know, but the, the signs of civilization are there for millennia. Just the old, the old buildings, the towns, it's just, you know, America is so young. When you're here and you're looking at things and, you know, 300 years, 400 years, you know, you're looking at, that's old. When we were there, you know, we're, look, we're staring at buildings that were there since 1100, 1200. You know, it's, it just boggles your mind the, just how long people have lived there. So again, you know, a lot of, you know, when you talk to Germany, most people are familiar with the Rhine River, Rhineland. So, you know, um, Rhineland is just above the Palatinate. Here you can see, here's another old map I found, you know, the, the unholy, I like to call it, Roman Empire. But, the, you know, they, they were under uh, subject of the, of the unholy Roman Empire, but the Palatinate, Palatinate is, uh, is kind of shown there. So during the 1700s, there was an awakening or a revival of people coming out of the Lutheran Church. Take a look at this one here. So there was an awakening or revival of people coming out of the Lutheran Church. In 1708, a group known as the Schwarzenauer Baptists arose in which eight souls were baptized. And on my mom's side, actually, one of, the, one of my grandfathers was a Schwartz. I don't know if there was a true connection there, but... I would imagine something. I mean, he was a Germ of German descent. 
But, the, you know, it's, it's said, though, that of these eight persons are descended all the various kinds of Baptists among the high Germans in North America. That's quoted from Chronicon Ephratense, which we'll get into in a little bit. This is a book. This is, um, I'm, I'm going to quote from this quite a bit. Uh, it's about the Ephrata Cloister, who, if you're not familiar with it, you will be by the time we're done here. And um, it, it kind of really follows this line of uh, Anabaptists coming out of Germany. So with this map, I was just trying to point out a couple things. The Schwarzenauer is up to the north of it. Um, right in the center is the Palatinate. And um, there's some names, you know, if you look in here, you might be familiar. If you're from Pennsylvania, Mannheim is the name of a town in the area, uh, Heidelberg. And... Um, <clears throat> The next town we're going to look at here is Ederbach in the Palatinate. So this is, now we're going to get into our, our next character, and uh, who's the, kind of the focus of this book, and that is John or Johann, um, but really he went by the, by the name Conrad Weissel. He was born in this little village here in 1690 in Ederbach, Palatinate, in what is modern-day Germany. At the time, it was still part of the unholy Roman Empire. So if you look, you know, this little beautiful town surrounded by these hills, and you can, you know, the, the woods in the area, they're just, it's beautiful. You can go hiking. It's kind of, uh, the way that Germany, this area works is, is basically you live in town. Um, if you're really rich, maybe you have a little farm outside of town. But the, the woods are kind of open, almost like state land that you'd have here, state parks. And so you can just go out walking and hiking in these woods, and they're, they're managed, you know, basically the, it's the possession of the state or whoever, you know, whoever the controlling governance is. And, you know, they go out and um, they actually do a really good job of ma- maintaining their forest as a, as a resource. You know, they harvest them, but then they're, they're constantly replanting them, and they do it in a pretty sustainable way. Anyhow, back to Conrad. Uh, Conrad Beisel. So his his father was an alcoholic baker that died two months before he was born, and his mother uh, died when he was eight years old. He grew up as an orphan until he was old enough to learn a trade in which he became a baker. Uh, He was converted to be a pietist at the age of 25, and in 1715, he was traveling with 400 other journeymen bakers to Hungary to learn more about their trade. When by conviction of the spirit, he jumped off in Strasbourg to pursue a different path, which was providential to him because the whole group that he was traveling with was was attacked and killed by Turks as they approached Hungary. A series of circumstances then took him to Heidelberg, where he became acquainted with other pietists. Now, these other pietists actually had to go out and meet in the forest because of persecution. They couldn't meet publicly or with other people. They had to kind of sneak off. And, and get together. But in Heidelberg, there was actually a great awakening happening of people, you know, standing up of these pietists and Anabaptists. So while in Heidelberg, he lived and worked uh, under a baker. He was kind of um, somewhat of a servant, being an orphan, not having any inheritance of his own. He always had to work under people. But he worked for this baker, and he did. It was kind of, um, kind of like a Joseph, you know, you know, where Joseph, whatever he did, his hand was blessed. And in many ways, Conrad Weissel had the same lot in life. And uh, he was. It's actually said that you know his illumination. This is some of these quotes are a little on the mystical side, but his illumination gave him a strange insight into nature, nature, 
and he became the most celebrated baker in the city, in which Christians and Jews ran after him for his baked goods. He ended up drawing much of the business um, of the town from the other bakers to himself, and it actually ended up bringing him enemies, and then eventually, which led to charges against him as of him being a heretic. He was then reported to an ecclesiastical court made up of the dominant three religions of the area, which would have been Roman Catholic, Lutheran, and Judaism. Those were basically the three things. If you could either be Roman Catholic, Lutheran, or, or Jew, otherwise you couldn't. You know, that was it. So it was reported to this court in which he was given the, the ultimatum, either join him or he had to leave the country. And it is actually said, it's quoted in the book, that a, a Jewish woman tried to intercede for him, as well as his employer, who actually offered a ransom for him. However, it was all in vain because he, he refused to submit to the ultimatum. So he, he ended up having to leave the country. But I really believe that his interactions with the Jews of the Palatinate had a good deal of influence in his theology as, as time went on. So around the same time, many others were being persecuted and banished from the Palatinate and really within England and, and all over Europe due to their religious beliefs. And a lot of them were fleeing to Pennsylvania. So uh, many of them were Mennonite, Moravia, and other forms of Anabaptists. And this is where Conrad chose to flee as well. Um, here's a good time to kind of take a brief sidetrack. Now, you Pennsylvanians will probably be aware of this, but for those of you know, Missourians or Ohioans or, you know, wherever you stem from, I'm going to give you a little bit of history on Pennsylvania. In 1681, William Penn, who was an English Quaker, was made governor of what is now Pennsylvania through land grant from King Charles II of England. However, he did not feel it was the king's land to give him as it belonged to Lenape Indians who were there long before the settlers. So he sought to buy the land from them at a fair price. He signed a treaty, which is what we see up here, with them in 1682 and established what he called his holy experiment in which man would be able to live at peace with one another and with the natives in pursuit of their own religious beliefs and free from the dictate of the state. And we'll see this as we go on. There's a character we're going to meet um, by the name of uh, Conrad Weiser a little later on, and, and he was a, an Indian agent, you know, and they actually made a lot of treat fair treaties with the natives and, and actually lived in peace with them up until the time that the English and the French, you know, stirred, I should say the French stirred the water during uh, the French and Indian War. But anyhow, getting back to uh, Pennsylvania and William Penn, is William Penn, when he, when he set up the colony of Pennsylvania, he didn't, which means Penn's Woods, by the way, for those of you that weren't aware, he, he didn't establish a standing military or any kind of, mili- you know, it was just a, a would have been just militias, but nothing, nothing standing. And also, he didn't set up any kind of oppress, oppressive governing body, which was in stark contrast to the rest of the colonies around them. So when Conrad fled to Pennsylvania in the year 1720, he looked at the colony as a new hope for the awakening body of Messiah. He is quoted as saying, Asia is fallen, and its lamp is gone out. For Europe, the sun hath set at bright midday. America sees a lily blooming whose perfume will spread unto the heathen. The evening and the morning will again make a day. The light of the evening shall send its brightness even unto the morning. And the last promised evening rain shall come to the help of the morning. 
And bring again the end unto the beginning, whereat Jacob shall be glad, and Israel rejoice. His initial purpose of traveling to, to Pennsylvania was to live in solitude. But he traveled to Pennsylvania with two of his friends, um, Stifle and Stunts. When they came, they came to Pennsylvania, they went outside of Philadelphia to a uh, settlement called Germantown. There were other, at the time, there were other pietist Baptists there living outside the Philadelphia. Um, and that to- at that time, the area was sparsely populated. Conrad joined a group of single men that had been there living, living there as hermits on a remote mountain, or like ridge, I wouldn't call it a mountain, but a remote ridge above the Wissahickon Creek. The group was started by a brethren by the name of John Calipus in 1690, who had died before Conrad's arrival. However, this uh, Calipus was actually a pretty interesting figure because he, he actually um, felt he was living in the wilderness, which he was at the time. It was wilderness in the colony. So the, the group called themselves Women in the Wilderness as a reference to Revelation 12. They kind of saw themselves living outside of society, just awaiting the Messiah's return. This sentiment is something that Conrad held on to, as we'll see as we go. So in the autumn of 1721, Conrad moved about 60 miles northwest into an upper country then known as Conestoga and settled along Mill Creek in modern-day Lebanon County in a place called Nilbach, which, for those of you that are familiar with the area, is just south of Richland and Myerstown. At the time, this area was sparsely populated by Europeans. Very, very few of them lived there. And it was here that um, Conrad lived at first in solitude. Eventually, a few other hermits followed him, but they just lived in basically off the land. You know, they were kind of back to the land type people of the day, just living out in the wilderness and, and little structures, cabins that they built. But as at, over time, you know, more and more people followed him because he, you know, he must have had somewhat of a draw to him as a as a preacher of, of sorts, kind of more of a John the Baptist type, I would say. Um, <clears throat> but then here in Milbach is where we actually first see the Sabbath show up in the book. And um, we'll quote that. So a companion came to them, and George Stifle, who he was quoted earlier, he was one of the guys that traveled with Conrad. At the same time, that he declared himself to his brethren that now he would observe the Sabbath and work on Sunday, which did not suit them very well, not Conrad, but the other brethren. This strange mode of life aroused much attention among the few settlers, of whom were continually coming and inquiring what it meant. Uh, Chronicon Ephratense, which is Latin for Chronicles of Ephrata, page 16. We can see that things haven't changed much in the last 300 years. When you say you're going to keep the Sabbath, you raise a few eyebrows and ruffle a few feathers. It seems it was, it was a group's custom to baptize on Shabbat because there are several men, pretty much any time a baptism is mentioned in the book, it's done on a Shabbat. The group in Milbach, you know, while being separate, they also kept in contact with the other Baptists back in back in Germantown, and also, you know, these Baptist communities were flourishing on, the mo- on their own. They had communities in Skipback, um, Ole, if you guys are familiar with where Ole is, and it's, they refer to it in the book as the Schuylkill um, 
the Schuylkill Brethren, which I actually believe is probably people living in or near Reading, Pennsylvania. However, the Sabbath and the group's mostly solitary life set them apart from the others. But what troubled them, being the other Baptists, the most was that they had heard that the superintendent, which I, I guess being translated out of German, basically Conrad, Bizzle, Bizzle, uh, Conrad Beisel as the leader of the group was referred to as the superintendent. So they heard that the superintendent and two others observed the Sabbath. Most of them insisted that one should prescribe rules for the brethren in Conestoga, that they might observe the Sabbath for themselves, but should preach its observance to no one else, so that whoever wished might observe Sunday. Thereupon another one said, If they intend to observe the Sabbath, they must also observe the whole law. For he who ordained the Sabbath ordained also circumcision. Others said it was a strange thing that the brethren in Conestoga had so firmly settled upon the Sabbath, and yet would not preach it. For if it was ordained to be observed, it must also be preached. Uh, Pages 27 and 28. But what baffles me the most, though, about the arguments from these other Baptists is that they, also, they kept Sunday as a Sabbath, just like the Amish and the Mennonites do today. You know, they, they won't work, they won't buy or sell, so they'll keep the ordinances that are decreed for the Sabbath, but yet they, they you know, they'll do it on a different day, but yet they're going to condemn these guys for trying to keep the Sabbath. So it was a bad argument. But, the, but um, their objections to it were just the beginning, as we will soon find out. <clears throat> Excuse me. As we know that along with Sabbath keeping comes the observance of clean food laws. And speaking of a trip that Conrad took to visit some of the other congregations, the book states, he had for himself two Judaizing brethren. I like that. <laughs> Got a kick out of that term. But they had such a fear of pork that they would not eat out of any vessel that was not quite clean. It is true that the superintendent had a deep insight into the secrets of nature. From the nature of the food, he knew how it would affect the unclean members, and from this, the suspicion against pork and unclean foods arose. As the first Christians, it is well known, also avoided them. Consequently, these creatures were banished from the housekeeping of the Sabbatists. Um, Came from page 32 of the book. So we knew that this had to be a pretty hard sell because Germans love their pork. So try to go to Germany and find something clean to eat. It's not easy. Because at the time we were there, we were just coming back into the faith and trying to find something clean was, was nearly impossible at times. I mean, you were pretty much eating vegetables because most meats they had were, unless you got a rump roast. Rump roasts were good. You know, it was basically a nice big steak. You get a rump roast, but don't touch any other meat. Otherwise, you know you're getting pork. So one of the best responses that, Con- that Conrad had um, when people started really questioning about the Sabbath was, um, was this one here. It says, they asked him why he observed the Sabbath. His answer was that he had experienced that whenever the Sabbath came, all his burdens which rested upon him during the week were removed, which did not happen to him on Sundays. Page 43. I know I have that sentiment, sentiment and I'm sure speaking with many of you, you guys do as well. You know, when the Sabbath comes, kind of all your other cares go away, and it's time to concentrate on Yahweh and his, and, uh, you know, his time. The seventh chapter of, the, of this book is 
actually titled, The Sabbath is Introduced to the Congregation. So um, I wanted to quote that for you. In the year 1728, the superintendent published a little book on the Sabbath, which was so effective that the congregation now publicly adopted the Sabbath as the day of divine service. So before this meeting, or before this, meetings were held on Sunday, and the Sabbath was celebrated in quiet. So I'm glad to see that these objections by these other groups, you know, kind of ended up falling by the wayside, and, and that Weissel's followers, you know, stuck to his um, conviction of the Sabbath. The book also makes mentions of others in the area besides the Germans that observed the Sabbath. At that time, there were among the English, who, if, if you guys are familiar with Amish, anybody that's not Amish is called the English. That's just a German kind of expression, you know, the English, right? You're the, you know, don't, don't dress like the English, don't act like the English. So I, I got a kick out of it. Even back then, this custom arose, you know. At that time, there were among the English people, various families who observed the Sabbath, like Abel Noble, the Welches, Ritter, etc. But according to the law of the land, they also had to observe Sunday. To this, the new Sabbatists did not want by any means to adapt themselves, but they held to the law, worked six days, and rested the seventh, which occasioned a good deal of commotion in the land. So this is... Uh, this gets good now. This is where, where you kind of get to see what happens. You know, how do people take, take you keeping the Sabbath? And it got them, a bit of, got them in a bit of hot water for righteousness' sake. Hold on. There we go. For not only did the mob perpetrate many excesses against them, but at length the civil authorities also interfered, and in that they confined the solitary in prison and sold the horses of the householders, offering, after deducting the amount of the fine, to pay back the balance on demand, to which they invariably perceived the reply that they might keep that also, since it was written, He that taketh from thee that is thine, demand it not of him again. you got to love the righteous response straight from the mouth of Yahshua. But, um, you know, so much for kind of the, the freedom of religion, right? You know, I mean, it, it only goes so far. I mean, by, as we're going to find out, you know, the law of the land, you know, was Sunday keeping. You had to actually keep, you couldn't work on Sunday. And that's what got them in hot water. It wasn't necessarily that they were keeping the Sabbath as a day of rest. It was that they were working on Sunday. So the next story of persecution that we're going to read about, and it was more so the, the response, not necessarily the story, but it's the response that's my favorite. At another time, a brother fell into the hands of a justice who had much to say about the English law, that's the law of Sunday keeping, with reference to the observance of, sun, observance of Sunday, and took up his law book in order to prove it. The brother said that he should lay aside his law book, as he was subject to a higher, namely Elohim's law book, so that his English law book had no authority over him. The justice put away his book and said he might go home, that he would make him a present of his fine if he would not work on Sunday in the future. The brother replied that he would not cease to work on Sunday, and besides, that he could not make him a present, since he did not owe him anything. But if he did owe him anything, he would pay it and not accept any present from him, to which the justice said nothing further. <laughs> I got a chuckle out of that one. So... <clears throat> Next, I kind of want to move on, and I want to, I want to speak a little bit here about the community in Ephrata. So up to this point, they were at Millbach, which is in Lebanon County. 
So after several years, you know, because Conrad originally wanted to live by himself, but all these people kind of kept following him. Wherever he would go, these people would come and, and kind of cling to him. So he withdrew himself again and moved eight miles away to live solita- a solitary life again in what is now called Ephrata. And, you know, he would still get together with these people that followed him there on Sabbath, but most of the week he would live on his own. However, the congregation eventually followed uh, Conrad to Ephrata, and in September of 1732, um, at first these were solitary brethren, which built small structures, which these are not. These are actually these are the structures that still stand today at Ephrata, um, and as the community itself grew, and we'll talk about it in a little bit. But um, at first, they just built little structures again to dwell in. Many single sisters ended up following too, and it, it came as long. Or, um, which they built simple housing for them on the other side of the creek. So in effort, a more structure, and over time, time, a convent was established for both men and women, which these are. This is one of the convents. And uh, these people that lived in the convents, they, de- they get dedicated their lives to prayer and worship, and they anticipated the coming of the Messiah awaiting him in the wilderness. These people were very much expecting him to come at any point in time. So... I do want to clarify some of the teachings of the community. Number one, actually kind of above the, the Sabbath, um, not necessarily the Sabbath wasn't important, but their, one of their biggest things was actually celibacy among single men. They preached it um, per 1 Corinthians 7. They, they took it pretty doctrinally that it was held in high regard that men and women should live a celibate life. And they, they taught that this was because it brought you closer to Yahweh since you don't have the worries of a wife and a family and your farm and all these possessions weighing you down, you're able to dedicate your life um, awaiting the Messiah as his virgin bride. Now, I do want to clarify, they didn't teach against marrying. They didn't say you couldn't marry, but they, they said that a celibate life was preferred to one that wanted to seek after, after Yahweh to the fullest extent. Um, they preached the Sabbath. And then which we talked about already, they also, the na- you know, the names. So they understood that the creator himself had a personal name. While they didn't use Yahweh, um, because of their German background, they used Jehovah, which we kind of know was erroneously kind of brought back or brought out of scriptures by German theologians. That's kind of where Jehovah came from. That's what they used. And it even appeared on their seal. So they, they at least... If nothing else, they, they understood that he had a name, and it wasn't just L-O-R-D. And they also, obviously, they didn't use the modern J-E-S-U-S, um, but they used the Latin, you know, the Latin form, the I-E-S-U-S. But however, when pronounced in German, this wouldn't have been issuous or anything like that. It was actually pronounced, the I would have been with a Y, and the S was actually more of a sh or su sound. So it was actually pronounced more of like Yeshua or Yeshuas, Yeshua. So it was a little closer, you know, at least it wasn't directly the J-E-S-U-S. Now, while I didn't find any direct mentions of feast keeping as, as large observances, um, I do recall hearing when I, when I talked to other people about them in the past, years ago, um, that they, this, the only time of the year that the solitary members would eat meat was during the Passover when they would eat lamb. So there, there is that, and to the same point, I didn't find any mentions of them keeping Christmas or Easter, you know, the pagan holidays. 
So the solitary, some of the other teachings were that the solitary members stuck to a simple, most, mostly vegetable diet um, that they grew of their own, or they were actually tithes as they, they established the convents. Um, there was communities, householders that, that lived around them that would bring tithes to them. So they, you know, they would eat mostly that. And uh, they, they would actually engage in acts of charity. That was one of their other big teachings. They, they built a bakehouse and a magazine for the supply of the poor, which I believe this was probably one of the magazines that was, you know, in which they kept a lot of this stuff. Um, they also housed and provide for any widows or, or orphans that came their way, um, of which many of the widows especially ended up becoming members. Both male and female widows would, you know, in their times of distress or loss, they would, end, they would find their way there to Ephrata and become members of the cloister. They practiced a life of extreme holiness, and I mean extreme holiness. They shunned anything deemed worldly, worldly such as fashionable dress, dancing, uh, musical instruments. Sorry, Jason, but it was a cappella for them. So basically, like the Amish, um, they, they eventually did adapt even like a very strict dress code, even more so than just plain dress, but they actually dressed in long white robes, um, the, the members of the convent did um, with hoods. The uh, householders, the married people, would, would wear gray. The, um, the celibates would wear uh, white. And their primary goal was awaiting the Messiah in holiness. To this effect, they actually adapted a very strange mode of sleeping, which became pretty much um, uh, a, a core belief of theirs. They, did, they wouldn't sleep through the night. And to ensure that they didn't, they didn't have beds as we would have them, they had sleeping benches, a 15-inch wide by about 6-foot long wooden bench. No cushion, just a wooden bench, and they had a 4x4 four four block as a pillow. So while not advocating this, I do believe that we as believers should become you know, accustomed to a level of discomfort in our life. Nowhere in Scripture are uh, we ex- you know, told that we're expected to, you know, to be comforted. Aside from the, the Holy Spirit, you know, that's our comforter. Knowing that we are walking righteousness should be our comfort, not all kinds of earthly comforts. You know, and, and you don't realize what we have. Last night we, in Benton County, we lost power for quite a few hours. And, uh, you know, we're without air conditioning for a while. And it was a little hot, you know. Just, just imagine, you know, the, the comfort of, figure that, you know, living in a building like this on a, uh, you know, August day, sleeping on a little bench. So the point, though, getting back to these benches, the point, the point of this less-than-ideal sleeping accommodation was so that they'd only sleep in two hours, and in, they would take shifts in order that they would always stay awake. Um, they were trying to, to listen to Yeshua's words in Matthew twenty four forty two. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your master is coming. They took it literally. I mean, when I'm saying these people lived a life of extreme holiness, they did. They preached adult baptism as... As the rem- and the remission of sins and walking in a new life under what they called, you know, the new Adam. And they preached true repentance, not just a confession. One of the things, and I kind of alluded to it earlier, that is not well known about the community, if you've ever done any, heard much about it, is that they actually had a large following of married families, referred to as householders. Some of the children of these families ended up joining the convent. Many of these families came to them through their missionary journeys in the area. We find in the Chronicon Ephratenses, they bought up from the spirit of this world the regions around Ephrata, 
so that in a few years the country from three to four miles around the settlement was occupied by this kind of people. Where, wherever there was a spring of water, no matter how unfertile the soil might be, there lived some household that was awaiting the master's salvation. Afterward, these regions were divided up, each one receiving its own particular name. One was called Massa, another Zor, the third Hebron, and the fourth Kadesh. It's page 66. So besides, uh, besides living here, uh, Conrad Beisel went on a lot of evangelical journeys in, the, in the, the region. And the one occurred in an area where I used to live, in North Heidelberg Township. I mean, literally, like, right there. Um, and it happened with one of the local legends, Conrad Weiser, who, if you guys are familiar, you know, most of you, I'm sure, aren't familiar with Conrad Weiser, but he was like a kind of Daniel Boone, um, who Daniel Boone came from Berks County, Pennsylvania as well, grew up in the Ole before he eventually ended his life out here in Missouri. You know, his life ended up out here in Missouri. But at any rate, Weiser's homestead is now a historical site, and he has a school district, roads, and parks named after him. And he was well known as an early pioneer of the area, and he served as a justice of the peace and as an Indian agent, establishing peace treaties and land deals with the natives. It's said that pretty much nothing was done with the natives without Conrad Weiser's um, involvement. So last year, while I was visiting my dad, I was looking through some, he has, he's big into history too, and he has a lot of these local township historical books. So I was reading through one of his books, and I found this great um, excerpt that I want to share with you all. So um, it's, uh, the, it's called The History of North Heidelberg Township, and it's from pages 28 through 29. So Conrad Beisel, a bearded hermit and mystic, founded the, on the founder of the Seventh-day Baptist headquartered at the Cloisters in Ephrata, visited the disillusioned Rice Church. So at the time, there was a, the, the book talked about this before, there was a big, you know, doctrinal disputes that were going on. People were actually locking each other out of, out of the church, and there was all kinds of goings on, because some of them were Lutheran, some of them were Reformed. But anyhow, so um, Conrad came up there and visited these people. Through his proselytizing, he placed El's light upon a candlestick in the dark region of the Topahawken, which is actually the Topahawken. I lived right on the Topahawken and went to Topahawken High School as Margie graduated from there, too. So this resulted in a great revival. In 1735, many were baptized by immersion in the Milbach Creek, including Pastor Miller, Conrad Weiser, Godfrey Fiddler, Johannes Stump, and Peter Klopp three elders of the church, the school teacher, five families, and some single persons. Weiser, Fiddler, Stump, and Klopp were all land grantees in North Heidelberg Township. A few, day la- a few days later, Weiser, Fiddler, Klopp, Miller, and others collected all the Lutheran and Reformed devotional books they could find, including the Psalms and Catechisms, cleaned out Miller's extensive library, and solemnly burned these at Fiddler's cabin on the banks of the Topahawken. Having taken a stand against their religious upbringing, they went off to join the cloister and monastic life at Ephrata. Weiser and Klopp later withdrew, not so their offspring. Weiser's daughter, Madalena, and Klopp's daughter, Thecla, stayed behind and were buried in the monastery. <clears throat> so the, and the Chronicon actually adds to it, because the Chronicon kind of tells the same event. Um, but that... Uh, 
adds, accordingly, they were baptized together under the water after the teaching of Messiah, which was done on a Sabbath in May of the year 1735. So while both the books, this you know, being Chronicon Ephratense and uh, this historical book, noted that Weiser withdrew after eight years, it's my understanding that he never actually rejoined any Protestant church, and he just he ended up seeking after his duties as a JOP and an Indian agent. And I read, because I read a lot of historical books, and uh, Weiser has actually spent a lot of his time north of Harrisburg living with natives in the Indian town known as Shikalemi, which is now currently Sunbury, Pennsylvania. The cloister declined after the death of Beisel in 1768. Um, oh, getting back to it. So this 1735, in the year 1735, interestingly enough, is right around the time that um, my great-great-great-great-great-grandfather uh, Matthias Deck came over from the Palatinate region and ended up settling in, in the area of Rarisburg, which is um, real close to, to the Topahawken area, which where my family remains to this day within the same area. Actually, my dad's farm, um, we found out after he bought it, but it was part of the original Deck farm that was bought. So <clears throat> getting back to Beisel here, uh, the cloister... Began, declined beginning in 1768 at his death, and the last celibate member died in 1813. Um, a lot there was actually a few hermit um, that kind of stayed around until 1820, um, but they never actually joined the convent. They just lived close by as hermits. Um, but in 1813, in 1814, the next year, the remaining householders of the area actually incorporated into the German Seventh Day Baptist Church which members uh, continued to live and worship in the cloister buildings. Those buildings we were looking at earlier, they were their buildings, and they kept them up to, to the church, ended up disbanding because there was only like one family left until 1934. So from its founding about you know, 200 years later, from 1732 uh, to 1934, there were Sabbath-keeping groups keeping Sabbath right there in Ephrata. You can still go and see the buildings if you ever make it to Pennsylvania, and you can learn about the lives of these fascinating early believers in Ephrata, um, where the PA Historical Society now owns and maintains the buildings and the grounds and offers tours. So a few years ago, while reading another historical book called The Hunters of Kentucky, which um, brought along because it does exist, so The Hunters of Kentucky here, I came across a really interesting account uh, that comes from a Dr. Thomas Walker's journal of encountering a group of people in March of 1750 while beginning his exploration into modern-day Kentucky. This encounter occurred along the Rockfish River in central Virginia at the beginning of his expedition. I actually have um, Sabbath-keeping friends that live right there by the Rockfish. So it goes, Guns, powder horns, and saddlebags held arm high. Wool duffels, an oilcloth budget around or bound with Tump lines and humpest Indian style up over their shoulders. The six, these are the six men of this expedition, swam their steeds and dogs across, Walker's cur on his lap, men and dogs staring at a throng of hairy faces gazing back from their western shore. If you want an idea what some of these hairy faces might look like, just keep staring. It was, Walk it was Walker discovered, a commune of expatriated brethren who had arrived in Philadelphia from Europe's Palatinate. Their leader summoned their thin, mob-capped mob women who kept their eyes cast downward, folks addressing one another as brother and sister, 
lacing talk with thee and thou and da and do, and kindling a fire as the men and dogs uh, drew near to dry. Brethren were Sabbatarians, Dr. Walker learned. Brush Arbor services they held on Saturdays. They rejected all creeds, save for the Bible alone, holding fast to the apostles' saying declared in 1 Peter 4.11, If any man speak, let him speak as the oracles of Elohim. Speak and practice such oracles brethren did, as the Spirit gave them utterance, greeting one another with holy kisses, foot washing to, bestow, or to show piety, fasting, shunning icons, papists, and Protestants, passing communion of wine and unleavened bread weekly, and adding no musical instruments to their a cappella homily. Brethren did not vote, serve in militias, or employ a clergy, but composed hymns, or but composed hymns, suffered women to keep silent in the assembly, and held all things in common. Oddly, brethren men baptized adults only, with a righteousness exceeding that of Pharisees, earning them their, their derisive nickname, Dunkers. These Dunkers were from the Ephrata community, an austere sect founded in 1732 by Conrad Beisel. Brother Beisel, a mystic who dreamed strange dreams and talked with Elohim and with angels, demanded his disciples live as cloistered as the Judaic Essenes who tented along the Dead Sea centuries before Messiah's birth. Beisel's followers donned togas and went about shot in Roman sandals, confusing Pennsylvanians who mocked them and reckoned the devout were a diaspora of lost Dominicans. Like Samson, the Hebrew giant vow. Like Apostle Paul, he buffeted his flesh daily, deeming celibacy the noblest of virtues, but ensuring doom for his sect. So this comes from the hunters, again, the Hunters of Kentucky, a narrative history of America's first far west, by Ted Franklin Bailu. It's actually a really interesting book. I think we bought it in... uh, uh, Colonial Williamsburg. So you never fu- know where you're going to find a mention of the Sabbath. So I'm encouraged to see that these pious Sabbath-keeping brethren were moving west ahead of the tide of the pioneers. You know, this was supposed to be an exploration of the west, and here these Sabbath keepers were already establishing themselves. Um, so how many other of these, you know, Sabbath keepers are lost to the books of history? Well, we'll never know. But these men and women moved ahead of the tide of civilization, trying to escape the worldly ways of Western society and seeking peace and solitude in the wilderness, no doubt experiencing many trials and tribulations along the way. One of the things that has me intrigued about this encounter is that it actually took place in 1750, when Ephrata was actually in its heyday. I can only speculate, but my guess is that the area around Ephrata were becoming built up and this band of brethren were looking for a more wilderness experience. Or possibly, since they were most likely householders and not celibate, they weren't able to find land that they could afford. So they went into the wilderness and took their chances living among the natives. I'm sure that they saw themselves as the current day John the Baptist, as they held, they, I'm sure they held this scripture close to them. In those days, John the Baptist, Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea, proclaiming, Repent! For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is the one whom Isaiah the prophet spoke of when he said, The voice of one crying out in the wilderness, Prepare the way of Yahweh, make his paths straight. Keep in mind that the purpose and message of baptism is that of repentance. The suppression of that baptism was held back, or the suppression of that baptism held back that repentance. 
and kept people walking in darkness. Infants can't repent of anything. So if you're not being baptized as an adult, what are you repenting of? It's, you know, where's that thought? Adult, I guess my point is, adult baptism is extremely important. These pioneers of the faith began, these pioneers of the faith began and brought forth that return to the seventh day Sabbath and the, and the quest for more truth. It's also my belief that these people, along with us, are descendants of the ten lost northern tribes of Israel, still being scattered to the ends of the earth. But that it is part of another, but that's part of another teaching for another day. The Seventh-day Baptists also gave rise eventually to William Miller and the Millerite movement of the 1830s and 40s, to which the sacred name movement of today can trace our roots. So I pray that this study was informative and inspirational to you, and that it will inspire you to move forward in your walk. May Yahweh bless.